You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. The big theme of today's reading is don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. That's the big theme. Uh, so on the face of it, uh, what we've just read is really seems to be about the end times, the end of the world. And Jesus is talking very plainly about that. So Jesus leaves the temple, which is a symbolic action. Uh, It's showing the end of his public ministry, the beginning of his private discussions with the disciples, preparing them for the end. It's also symbolic of the glory of God leaving the temple, a kind of sign that it's going to be destroyed. Um, And Jesus sits down opposite the temple in, again, once again, in a position of teaching and also of judgment. Um, And on the way out of the temple, one of the disciples has said to him, you know, isn't this place amazing? And Jesus says, no, actually, the whole thing will be thrown down. So after they walked to the Mount of Olives, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, when will this be? And Jesus answers in quite a mysterious way. He, st- he, st- he answers by mixing together the, the coming judgment of Jerusalem, which happened about 40 years later in 70 AD. But he also begins to talk about the end of the world, too. And the two things seem to be, they are mystically, mysteriously connected, actually. But we're not talking about that today. So he's talking, he's beginning to talk about the end of the world. But before he gets into the specifics of what's going to happen at the end, his first concern is to say to the disciples, don't get sidetracked. That's what this passage is about. Um, He wants to warn the disciples not to get distracted from the mission of the church by all the things that are going to happen up until the time that Jesus returns. And he lists a couple of dangers um, in, in his teaching. He says, many will come in my name. Do not be deceived. And he says, you will hear of wars. There'll be famine, earthquakes, and so on. Do not be alarmed. These are just the beginning. So his concern is not really to unfold right just now what is going to happen at the end. His concern is to say, make sure you've got the right attitude as you approach the end. And the passage as a whole serves as a warning from the Lord to focus on the right things and to not get sidetracked. Of course, that is essential for the apostles as they go out into the world and they begin this amazing adventure of laying the foundations of the church. Um, it's so important that they don't, get, they don't get sidetracked by the wrong things. But of course, Jesus' message to them is helpful for us too. It's helpful for the church throughout the age, uh, the whole of the age of the church, so that we don't get distracted. And it's also helpful for us on a very kind of individual level as well, because our own lives are like a journey from beginning to end. It's long there's a goal at the end that's easy to get sidetracked. And so the whole passage serves as a, a kind of big picture, but also a personal encouragement, uh, teaching and warning. So we're going to look at don't get distracted. We're going to look at three potential ways we can be uh, sidetracked. Um, the first one is distraction. The second is going to be deception. And the third is despair. It doesn't happen all the time, but three Ds. There we go. So Distraction. So the first thing that might sidetrack us in our pursuit of Jesus is distractions. And actually, we see that Jesus is beginning to teach the disciples even before he's teaching them. You know, even before he sat down and he's teaching them. One of the disciples, we don't know who, because Mark doesn't tell us. I'm guessing that Peter wanted to be modest. He didn't want to um, embarrass anyone. One of the disciples, as they're walking out of the temple, says, Oh, look at these uh, enormous blocks that used to build the temple. He's acting the part of the country bumpkin, you know. Uh, in the city. He points out the stones that temples are built with. And no wonder he was impressed. The passage doesn't really 
go into detail about what the temple was like, but here's a little quote from a historian that describes what the temple in Jerusalem was like at that point. So he says this, At no place was Herod the Great's obsession with grandeur and permanence more apparent than in the Jerusalem temple. Herod enlarged Solomon's temple to an esplanade, which I thought was a make of car, but it actually means a large, flat space. Esplanade or esplanade, I don't know, you, you might know. Anyway, measuring some 325 metres by 500 metres long. 325 metres by 500 metres. This massive clearing. That contains, that could contain 12 football pitches. The southeast corner of the t- retaining wall hung some 15 storeys above the ground that sloped down to the Kidron Valley. You're picturing that? The blocks of stone used in construction were enormous. Josephus reports that some were about 20 metres in length. Just one block of... So you can see why it might have caught this unnamed disciple's attention. So the magnitude of the temple and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. And that was merely the retaining wall. Above, on the south end of the esplanade, perched the gleaming royal portico, a striking spectacle. The columns were crowned with Corinthian capitals and rose to a height of 40 feet, supporting a cedar-panelled ceiling above. The thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms to, uh, wrap, to envelop it, to wrap themselves around it. In the centre of the esplanade stood the sanctuary, which, as ancient writers noted, was shaped like a lion, broader in the front, about 50 metres, and narrower in the back, about 30 metres. It rose to a height of 50 metres and was a visual collage of gold and silver, crimson and purple, radiating the rising sun like a snow-clad mountain. <coughs> and the figures uh, that Josephus gives for the blocks of stone in the sanctuary exceed in size even those of the foundation, so even bigger than 20 metres long. So he may, you may, we may think he's being a country pumpkin, but there's something to be impressed about, right? <laughs> this is pretty amazing. But what does Jesus say? Yeah. It's all going to be toppled down. No stone will be left standing on another. It's all going to go. So don't get distracted. Is this, don't be sidetracked. Don't get distracted is the first point. This uh, picture of the disciple being distracted is a picture of what, what is going on in our own hearts. Because of the effects of sin in us, we, are, we find it very hard to judge the true worth of the things we see around us. We're like a set of broken scales, crooked scales, if you like, where you go to weigh something, you think, is this important? And, and we find it really hard to do. And there are several examples we can, we can pick. One of them is in this passage, is just the impact that big things have on us. So we think big things are really, really important. Like, that's part of our fallen nature. We, we, we think that if something's bigger, it's better. So a, another example of that, I found um, a quote from uh, Stephen Hawking talking about um, the size of the universe. He says this, he says, The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. Well, what is how big something is got to do with its significance? C.S. Lewis replies, not to Hawking because they weren't contemporaries, but he says on that point, he says, only a lunatic would think a man six foot high is more important than a man five foot high. Good news for me and Mark. (laughs) 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 Only a lunatic would think a horse was necessarily more important than a man or a man's legs more important than his brain. You know, it's just, 
It's, it's not a sensible way of thinking, but there's a brokenness inside of us that goes, oh, it's so big, it must be really, really important, and we missed that significance. Um, you know, we're, we're affected by the things around us. We're, you know, when it's a cloudy day, we feel miserable. That's silly, isn't it? You know, foggy days are a gift from God as well as sunny days. <laughs> we, we, we're, just, we're distracted by the wrong things. We find it hard to, to, to weigh stuff up. And we see that pattern. This is a helpful warning for the disciples because the church down the ages and even in the early church was distracted by some silly stuff. There's, there's been a constant temptation in the church to be distracted from our, the central mission, which is love. The love of God displayed at the cross. That we are called to live out together in communion with him and one another. And to pour forth that love in mission to the world. That's, that's the church. I mean, it's a brief and clumsy summary, but I think it's okay. And yet we're so easily distracted by relatively unimportant things. So even after just a few years, James has to write to the churches and say, guys, you're honouring the rich people among you, but not the poor. What are you doing? Paul writes to the Romans because uh, they're being tempted to criticise one another because of their choice of food. And so he has to write to them, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Already this is like you know, 50 AD. He writes to the Galatians because they're hung up on whether to get circumcised or not. He says... Paul has to say to him, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He has to write to the Corinthians about just about everything. <laughs> like, uh, you know, who are you baptised by? It doesn't matter who you're baptised by. It's whether you belong to Jesus. It's about looking wise and looking important and pompous. And he said, it doesn't, the wisdom of the world is nothing compared to the wisdom of the cross about the gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit. They're so hung up on them. He says, they're good, they're good. But that's not the goal. The goal is love. To pursue that above all things. And we see that pattern repeated through history. A church is easily distracted by things that we think are important and which aren't. And what's true for the church is true for us as individuals as well. It's almost comical how easily... Distracted. It is comical <laughs> how easily distracted we are. Um, if you've seen the film Up, anyone seen that film? Disney film Up, the one with the balloons, <laughs> and it's got those talking dogs in it, and you know they've got a little collar that um, that translates their thoughts into speech, you know, which is quite funny. So that you know dogs wag their tail, they look at someone, and it translates that into speech as I am a dog, I like you, I have just met you, but you are my best friend, you know that sort of thing. <laughs> And there are these good dogs and these mean dogs and there's these really tough dogs and they're being really threatening and you know, they're going to ruin the whole mission. But they're so easily distracted that if there's a squirrel nearby, all of them, those whole pack of dogs, will suddenly turn around and all of a sudden just go, squirrel! In the middle of like, making a, a, a threat against someone's life. Squirrel! <laughs> we're not so different to that as human beings. You know, we're built for something greater, hopefully not to threaten people. <laughs> But we're so easily distracted. I remember, you know, and it is comical. I remember in my own life, I used to work in a, in a, a computer game shop in Oxford Street when I was a student in my uh, holidays. And I, I remember just being obsessed with this computer graphics card that was in the storeroom. <laughs> what? Like, so in, in my breaks, I would just go and I'd be like, oh, it's like £40, can I afford it? And I'd stare at it. And like, if I had to go to the stock room to buy something, you know, I'd just go and stare at this orange box with this... Branding on anything. And you know, one time the boss came in and he was like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, nothing, nothing. And then like, again, like, later in the day, I was in there thinking about whether I could buy this stupid graphics card. 
And in the end, I did buy it and plugged it into my computer and it broke. So anyway, that, that'll learn me. So, so it's kind of comical how easily distracted we are. And maybe you can think of things in your, in your own life that are kind of silly or not so silly. God doesn't want us to be distracted by things that aren't important. Or he doesn't want us to overly focus on things that are good, but not ultimately important. He doesn't want us missing out on the fullness of life that he offers us as Christians, just because we are squirrel. Thinking like that. There's examples of this in the Bible. You know, Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of stew. <laughs> He'd had a hard day. He'd been at work all day. You know, working hard in the field. He comes home and he swaps his inheritance for a bowl of stew because he's so hungry. And some of you might think about this. <laughs> I, I, I might be tempted by that. You know, this thing, food, is good, right? It's made by God. It's made to please us and give us pleasure and to give him glory and that sort of thing. But it's not that important. Yet there's this brokenness inside us. The, the disciples, this is a remarkable one, the disciples at Gethsemane, Jesus goes to pray in Gethsemane, and this is the, the, it's the pinnacle of his ministry. And what's about to be revealed in this, this garden just before the crucifixion is, is a mystery that's remained hidden from the beginning of the world. The, the very relationships of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, are about to be revealed in prayer. That We, we get to read that in Scripture. And that Jesus says to the, the, the core group of disciples, come with me and pray with me. What do they do? Do they hang on his every word? Are they attentively there upholding him in his suffering? No, they fall asleep. Because they're tired. <coughs> Jesus says your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're so easily distracted, even from really, really important things. What is on offer to us in being a Christian is so enormously good. Christ-likeness. To be like Jesus. To be so full of his love. To know the Father so fully we can, we can go anywhere. To love the Father so fully where it's just full of praise. To love people like Jesus loved people. To know God like that. That's what's on offer to us. But it, it's not easy the rewards are not immediately obvious. They don't come after a few weeks or months or even a few years of being a Christian. It's a long road. And it's, we're easily distracted. There are shiny things and tasty things and big things. Jesus wants to fix us. He wants to, he wants to fix those broken scales. What does he say to the disciple, the unnamed disciple? It's this first word is the important one. See. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to see things from his perspective. He gives us the power to determine the true value of things. Remember last week we were talking about the widow's might. I was saying like Jesus saw it with, through the veil of heaven, if you like. And saw her value, the value of what she was giving. The value of her magnanimous heart. God wants to do, do that with us. And, you know, so, so this is the first point this morning, is just to say, like, don't be distracted. And if you're distracted, just know this. God isn't angry about your distraction. He's, he's just like Jesus is with this disciple. He just wants to come alongside you and say, I understand why you think that's so 
important or why it's worth spending so much time on or so impressive or whatever it is. But it doesn't matter as much as you think it does. He just wants you to acknowledge that your perspective is limited and your scales are broken. So he says to you this morning, there's stuff in your life that is good, but it's not as good as you're treating it. You're treating it too well. You spend too much time on it. You spend too much money on that thing. You spend too much thought on it. You spend too long mourning over this situation or stewing over this argument or sulking over something that's happened to you. Because those things weigh too much and God wants to fix those scales and set you free. There are things in your life that you know are temporary and yet you're treating them as if they're of eternal value. You're storing up treasure on earth, not in heaven. All these things Jesus is just reminding us this morning are going to be toppled over, thrown down. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, says Scripture. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now in this life you have the opportunity to build with gold or silver or precious stones. But you're building your life with hay, wood and straw. And Jesus wants to come alongside you and give you a degree in spiritual engineering and show you what to build with. He wants to take you up to heaven and readjust your sights. He says this morning, don't get distracted. Let me show you. Come up here. Look down. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Like dust on the scales. So ask God to open your eyes to the distractions in your life and to set you free from from them. So, don't get sidetracked by distraction. So the second uh, potential sidetrack is deception. So verse 5, Jesus says, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come saying, I am he. Literally in the Greek, I am. So there's a claim here both to be the Messiah but also to claim the authority of God. Do not be deceived. Many will come. And in a way, this is easier to understand. It doesn't take as much explanation. Jesus is saying that his return is going to be delayed long enough. I mean, they didn't have any idea, did they, that we'd be here 2,000 years. We don't think they had any idea. His delay is going to be returned long enough for false messiahs to be a temptation for Christians. What's going to be especially hard about that is people are going to come along and say, I'm Jesus or I'm coming in his name and many will be deceived. And there's something really hard about when you see lots of people going, oh, I think that's true, I'm going to do that. It's something especially hard because we feel like there's a kind of weird kind of humility that goes on. And go, well, I guess if so many people think it's right, then it, maybe, maybe I'm not seeing things straight. And so, you know, again, throughout church history, we see what Jesus predicts happening. In the early church, there were people who were claiming to speak secrets from Jesus that he hadn't told the apostles. They were called the Gnostics. Uh, in about 600 AD, a guy called Muhammad came along and said, you know, Jesus said quite a lot of good stuff, but I've come to finish what he started. And many people followed him. And remarkably, is so. And uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus came back in 1914. Thank you. Invisibly. Unnoticeably. Unnoticeably. So many will come, and this is just a a handful. And all these are deceptions that distract us from the real return of Christ. 
So, again, we can take that, you know, Jesus is warning the church, he's warning the apostles, and through them the church about this, this big picture, but we can take that and we can zoom it down to our own lives. Following Jesus, like I said at the beginning, is a long journey. The road to spiritual maturity is long and hard, and as the hymn says, it leads through many dangers and toils and snares. We have to go through the wilderness before we come to the promised land. It's, it's hard. We have to suffer with Christ before we begin to know and experience his glory. And he says, don't get sidetracked by being deceived. By accepting a, a false conclusion to this journey that you've, you've taken up. By accepting something that's less than what I've, I've promised you. We, we are tempted to compromise, not literally to believe in a false messiah, but to believe in teaching that compromises what Jesus has said. You know, Jesus said some really, really tough things. The Bible says some tough things that are hard. Uh, some of these things are pressing on our culture. And they're saying, can what you believe really be true? Your stance on gay marriage, or just on marriage. You know, Jesus taught um, we should keep the marriage bed pure, we should save sex for marriage. I mean, plenty of people think that alone is madness, unhealthy, psychologically damaging. <laughs> And the temptation for the church to, ta- to change its teaching on various issues is great. We're tempted not only by false teaching, but also by the false promises of sin. There's a famous story, you might have heard it before. Malcolm Muggeridge tells a story about when he was a journalist in India. And he was overcome with temptation one time. He was walking along the banks of a river and he saw a woman on the far side of the river. He's married at this time saw a woman on the far side of the river and she was washing in the river and he was, um, he, he was just overwhelmed with temptation to lust. And he, begin, he began to actually cross the river to swim towards her to try and seduce this woman. Quite amazing, honestly, but I think for him to, to have written this down for posterity. He begins to swim towards her and as he gets closer, she turns around and he realises that she's very, very old. Her skin is wrinkled, her teeth are missing. She's leprous. And he's filled with shame. Ironically, he says, his initial feeling was to blame her. <laughs> Ooh, how could you, you have tempted me like that? And later he went on to see that it was his own heart that was the temptation. So, so we're tempted by false doctrine. We're tempted by sin. And what the thing they have in common is neither delivers the amazing promises that Christ delivers to us. None of those false messiahs who have claimed to come in the name of Christ have brought what Jesus said he'd bring. At the end, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to get rid of all the evil in the world and establish a kingdom that will know no end. I'm going to bring a new creation. You know, an invisible messiah in 1914 can't see him or touch him or anything. It doesn't deliver, does it? Nothing changed. None of those messiahs can bring, who've, who've come since Jesus, could bring about the end of all things like Jesus. None of them offer what Jesus has promised. And the same is true for us personally. God's morality is not there to just bash us over the head, to, to rob us of fun. It's to direct us towards that goal of Christ-likeness. It's, it's to fill us with joy. You know, the, the, psalm, the first psalm says this, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Why? Because he is like a tree planted by running streams. 
living waters. He bears fruit in season and out of season. He's full of goodness. So when God gives us a hard teaching, whether it's about sexuality or any other aspect of life, he's not trying to rob us. He's trying to fill us with goodness. And it's worth holding on to that teaching to, to, to reach the amazing goodness that he wants to give us. It's just to know him and to love him. And likewise with doctrine. You know, doctrine tries to rob us. You know, really there are only two doctrines from which everything else flows. The first is the Trinity, which defines for us love. And the second is the Incarnation, which describes to us how much of that love God wants to share with us, which is all of it. And every heresy, every false teaching is an attack fundamentally on one of those two things. Either God's love is not the way he describes it, or he doesn't want to share it as fully as he has revealed. He doesn't actually want to make us sons. He's happy to make us servants or slaves or whatever. So even doctrine is there to fill us with goodness. To make us fruitful. So in your fight against sin, in your own personal fight, against worldliness, against sin, against the temptation maybe just to di- disbelieve what it means, the, the basics of Christianity, or disbelieve some doctrine, remember the, the fight that you're in. Those temptations have nothing to offer you. The wicked are like chaff, they blow away in the breeze. But God has everything. Those temptations, they are waterless springs. They're they're clouded in in the air and they never rain. They won't bring the refreshment that you want. Maybe there's even a temptation today, some sin or some temptation to disbelief that you come with this week or even this morning. And God is saying, that thing that you are tempted towards, it will not deliver what you think it does. Don't be sidetracked. Don't be deceived. So thirdly then, we've had two sidetracks, distraction, deception. Thirdly, despair. And Jesus says to his disciples, when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. I don't know if you ever watch any of uh, those kind of police documentaries on the television where they're kind of pulling people over in their cars or whatever. And if, someone, if they pull someone over in their car and they have good suspicion to think it's like a proper criminal, I don't know if you've seen what they do. The police just go crazy on the car. They get their batons out and they start smashing. The, they don't give them a warning or anything like that. They just start smashing the windscreen and banging on the, wind, on the doors and the windows and shouting at the top of their voice, get out, get out, get out. Have you seen that? I'm pretty sure Sophie's nodding. <laughs> um, why do they do that? Because when someone is shouting like that, we are kind of hardwired to go, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Even like hardened criminals. Like, if they're not expecting it, their instinct is to kind of cower and just to do what they're told. Like, we have this kind of instinctive response. It's called the shock and awe response. uh, Countries use it when they're waging war. America's famous for using shock and awe tactics in in Iraq. Uh, And so shock and awe is defined as spectacular displays of force designed to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy its will to fight. We need to know that our enemy's tactic is often that. The enemy of our souls is not stronger than our saviour. His primary weapon, almost his own weapon, 
is to shout loudly. He can instill us with fear. He can cause us to be paralysed and to despair. There's a picture of this in, uh, in Scripture, in, in Revelation, a powerful picture of, the, of Satan's tactic, of uh, a dragon waiting. Uh, a woman appears, this picture of Israel. A woman appears, and she gives birth to a child. And as she's in labour, this, dra- this horrible picture, a dragon is waiting opposite her, waiting to devour her child. Scary, isn't it? Scary picture. Uh, the child is born, the woman's taken to safety, the child is caught up so that the dragon can't, um, can't devour it. And, and uh, the dragon is enraged. It says, it says this in scripture, it says, uh, from his mouth the, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's command and, commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That's the enemy we have. He wants to use his size and his horror, his vo- the loudness, the volume of his voice to intimidate and to scare us. And Jesus is saying, when you hear these scary things, rumors of wars, famines, and so on, you know, don't despair, don't be alarmed, hold fast, don't get sidetracked. How many times must the apostles have been tempted to give up? in the face of what seems like apparently overwhelming odds. I think of small situations, you know, not like what global situations, but like when Paul arrives in Athens, and he just like, he is just gobsmacked, gut-wrenched about the number of idols and false gods and temples he sees there. Ugh. And he stands up in front of this crowd of, of cynics and has to tell them about the unknown God. His heart must have been like, what is the point? They're so... You know, enmeshed in, in this idolatry and this false way of living. What's the point of me standing up? And yet he didn't despair. He did what God commanded. And some were saved. The, the, the early church faced 250 years of persecution, of being put to death, thrown to lions, torn to pieces, executed for their faith, mocked, uh, uh, ruled against in the courts and by the lords, mercilessly. Ten uh, great persecutions up until around the year 300. Again and again and again, the church was attacked. This is what that dragon was doing. And yet Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't despair. Don't give up. You know, the, the same temptation, in, in a global sense, faces, faces us today. We are faced with you know, political War, you know, apparent disaster. I mean, a few years ago, I was up here joking about Donald Trump being president in the USA. You know, but look, look at the temperature of the, of the arguments that are happening. You know, morally, we look at the, the, the decay that's going on in our culture and how quickly things have changed and how quickly minds have been changed about what is right and, and wrong. And who knows? I mean, it's so rapid. Who knows how it's going to go in the next 10 or 20 years? And our, our hearts quake inside us thinking about where is this leading? We look at like, the global disaster with some ridiculous statistic. It's so large, I can't even... I, you know, I didn't want to believe it, but it's on like, it's every newspaper about something like two, 
of living creatures have been destroyed in the last 70 years or something like that. Did you see that in the paper two weeks ago? 60% of wild animals. I mean, not all the species, but in terms of actual numbers of animals. I'm like, that's kind of makes my, my heart um, quake. And sharpens my reflexes. <laughs> disaster is on the horizon. And what is Jesus' answer to? Do not be alarmed when you hear of disasters. What then? This is just the beginning. Not just the beginning. (laughs) The beginning of birth pains. That is a message not just to hold fast, but to have hope, not despair. When you have a, a, a baby, ladies, forgive me for mansplaining, when you have a baby, there's this long, great stretch of waiting, isn't there? Just like get, getting bigger. And da, da, da. You know, but it's kind of boring and just waiting for the end. And when the labour pains start, you don't go, oh, that was all a waste of time. I might as well give up. <laughs> right? It's just the beginning, isn't it? Like you know now it's going to get serious. Now the opportunities begin. Now the, now the good stuff starts. So when you see that stuff happening, don't give up. That's when you get excited. That's when it gets serious, when it gets dangerous. When the going gets tough, you know, that's when Christians are supposed to get going. You know, the disciples of Jesus didn't give up. They were executed and persecuted and imprisoned and dragged here and there and everywhere before courts and kings. And, and they acted with hope, not despair. They saw God do Amazing things. They saw the kingdom of God grow and grow. That empire that persecuted the early church so mercilessly was converted for Christ. And the emperor bowed his knee and was baptised. Stupid dragon. (laughs) He's roaring. He's shouting. Here's a, a twin encouragement. And the same is true for us. In a society that seems to be turning its back on Christ, where morality is reverting to pre-Christian paganism, pretty much. Where technology and global trade oppresses millions, where political problems and social problems seem to be more intractable than ever. These are birth pangs. God is about to deliver. And now is not the time for us to give up, but to get serious. To be expectant of the imminent arrival. Not the end. If not the end of the world, then at least the birth of something amazing. God will bring new life to the world around us. And we must not despair. We have this amazing ark with all the life, all the law of God in it, all the precious things that God wants to preserve. He's placed within his church. And we can float above the floodwaters. And as they recede, we can renew the earth. And for us personally too, there are times when you will be tempted to give in to despair by your own situations, by things that conspire against you and make you feel like what's happened in the past has been a waste of time, by intractable, intractable problems you can't, cannot see a way through, by the strength of, of sin in your own life that traps you. Maybe you'll be tempted to, to, to despair by the, the force of temptations that assail you and just think, 
is so loud and the temptation is so great. What is the point of resisting? I'm going to fail anyway. Maybe you just realize just how far you've got to go to be like Christ. And just think that is such a long journey. There's no point even putting one step in front of the other. The enemy wants us to give up. To say to God, why have you led me out of slavery and through the waters and into the desert to die? He wants us to think it's not worth fighting. He wants us to think, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if I look at this or if I say that? Or if I spend time in prayer or if I love the unlovable or if I give in to temptation or if I give my money at all or if I speak up for the truth? What difference does it make? Am I not just shouting into the hurricane? And God wants us to know that those are the moments when the fight is the hardest. That is the beginning of the birth pains. Right then, if we are faithful in those things in our life, God will do something new and bring to birth in us something amazing. The psalmist writes, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord. And he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. God doesn't need you to fight when the battle is hard. He just needs you to have faith, not despair. When it seems impossible, he reminds you, you will not have to fight this battle. Like he said to Jehoshaphat, take up your positions. Stand firm. And see the deliverance the Lord will give to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them and the Lord will be with you. The same love, he, the same hope he extends not just to us as faithful Christians, but even if you don't know Christ, even if you're not a Christian, he wants you to know that the battles you face are not yours to fight, but he will rescue you from sin, from temptation, from the mess of your life, from guilt and despair and the lack of peace that's in your heart. He will rescue you from those things if you just stand firm and look to him and give your life to him. And we, having seen what the Lord says to us personally, we zoom out finally to think about this big picture Jesus is inviting us to look at. In, the ter- in terms of the world's troubles, the temptation to despair, as bad as it is right now, is only just beginning. The Bible tells us there is yet to come a great deception. There is yet to come the fulfillment of Antichrist. There is yet to come not only the defilement of the, of the Temple of Jerusalem, But the temple of creation itself will be subject to abomination. There will be a persecution of the church that mirrors the suffering of Christ. There there will be a deception. that Many will be deceived. And it might even seem that everything is lost. All to come. There will be a time when the church experiences its own Good Friday. And deathly silent, almost hopeless 
Holy Saturday. But Jesus says, do not be alarmed. This apparent death will just be the beginning. Just as it was for me. So for you. My humiliation was just the beginning of my glory. The same power that raised me from the dead is at work in you. He looks at the nations and he says, why do they conspire? Why do the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess his name. The whole world will stand astonished before the triumph of Christ and his pure and perfect bride. I am the beginning and the end, he says, the Alpha and the Omega. I shall not fail and no one who trusts in me will fall. Do not despair. Do not get sidetracked. Amen.